Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I'm privileged today to have a returning guest, George Crisides. George, welcome back. Thank you. Let me read a little thanks bit. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you back here. A little bit of uh, George's uh, bio from the back of the book that we're going to be discussing today. He is research fellow in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at York St. John University in the UK. His publications include Jehovah's Witnesses uh, and the Bloomsbury Companion to Studying Christians. And today we're going to be talking about a new book for those watching. Whoop, I guess you can't see it. It's hard. It's we give him my, my screen. And there we go. There He's we got it held up. It's contested concepts in the study of religion, a critical exploration, which he co-edited with Amy R. Whitehead. And it's a fantastic book. And I'm really looking forward to discussing the contents here because uh, this is a, a topic that uh, is known by scholars who study religion, but not by the, the average person who assumes that uh, there's pretty much a consensus on a lot of these ideas. Um, but to to dive in, how did what was the idea? How did this book come about? The idea for it. Well, the idea was it was when we were on a field trip at the end of a conference back in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, we were taken to uh, what looked like a Roman Catholic monastery, and I think the the people that worked there originally were Roman Catholics, but were kind of elbowed out of the Roman Catholic tradition, and um, the. Uh, principal of the the monastery called himself Swami Roberto, which doesn't sound very Roman Catholic, as you'd agree. Uh, but when you looked around the monastery, the Virgin Mary was holding a lotus flower in an image, and there was a Zen garden at the back, and there were various symbols uh, with the Om message. So when Swami Roberto talked to us, one of the things he said was, we're not syncretistic. So some of us thought that's a bit puzzling because it looked as if there was a whole merging of traditions. So uh, I was sitting next to Carol Cusack, who's an Australian scholar, and I said to her, that's a bit strange. And she said that she agreed, but she also said, well, I've got problems with the term syncretism anyway. And I said, well, so have I, because syncretism implies that you've got a pure tradition that gets mixed up with another pure tradition. And historically, religions are never pure. Uh, they're always a kind of mix of what textbooks call traditional religions, but aren't, of course, as separate as the textbooks say. So we talked a bit about syncretism, and um, then we said, well, there are other concepts, too, that are problematic, and we listed about half a dozen in our conversation. By the time we got to the end of the day, I had written down, I think, two dozen. And when we got back home, the list expanded to about 50. Now, the original idea was that Carol and I would do the book, 
But um, Carol had various issues and commitments and said that uh, she couldn't do it. So we approached uh, Amy Whitehead, who is not in Australia, but in New Zealand, which is not actually all that close, but it's in the same hemisphere anyway. And uh, I've known Amy for a number of years and had a very high regard for her as a scholar. So we approached Amy and uh, I think maybe we thought at one point that the three of us would do the book together. But uh, Carol dropped out and uh, Amy and I worked together on it. Carol offered some advice because one of the things we did initially was because we had 50 concepts, we couldn't have 50 chapters in a book of that length. So whenever I write a book, actually, the first thing I do is to get out my pocket calculator and um, then work out just uh, how many words you've got for each chapter. So if we had too many concepts, we'd have too short chapters. And... Um, if we had too few concepts allowing greater length, then uh, that wouldn't be terribly satisfactory. So somewhere in the middle, you split the difference. And we decided that um, about 2,500 words each was enough for people to develop the idea and uh, to give it a proper discussion. Uh, so that was what we did. And we ended up with, I can't remember how many chapters now, uh, no, I never remember what I've written, to be honest. Yes, it was um, 25 chapters in all. So uh, that w that covered a sufficient range of topics, we thought, but um, at the same time gave the authors enough space to just explore the idea that we had assigned to them. Now, when folks hear about the book, they might assume that this is a keywords book or maybe a dictionary of re contested religious concepts. But in your introduction, you mm. point out that's not what this book is about. No, absolutely not. No, and uh, as you know, when you send in a book proposal, it goes to a number of referees. And uh, referees um, either make encouraging or disparaging comments. And actually, all four referees said the book was worth publishing. So uh, that's an achievement because usually there's some miserable person that says, on no account, publish this book. So we, we did get the thumbs up from all four. But uh, one of them said, because one of the questions that Bloomsbury asked was, how would you describe this book in just a phrase? Uh, this person had written another keywords book. So we thought, well, no, that's not what we're on about at all. Uh, a keywords book is for people that uh, are new to a subject and actually don't understand the concepts. So maybe a raw student would uh, would fail to know what eschatology means. So they need a keywords book or a dictionary or whatever for that. Uh, that wasn't what we were doing. What we were doing is to say there are concepts like syncretism that are inherently problematic, not because you don't understand what the word means, but because maybe you don't see the problems inherent in the concept, namely that uh, somebody who's accused of syncretism isn't stirring two religions together and getting a kind of um, amalgam of the two. Uh, it's not like that. And we need to be careful about using the term. So uh, it was Carol Cusack that got landed with the concept of syncretism because uh, really she had started it all off 
So um, that was what we did with the various concepts. And given that referee's comment, we were careful to say at the beginning, this is not a keywords book we're doing. It is a discussion of problems that we call contested concepts. But uh, contested can mean a variety of things. It can mean that scholars disagree about what the concept means. It could be that we're using it without sufficient reflection because with a concept like world religion, which gets used very frequently still, it's not quite clear what people mean by that. You know, when you say something's a world religion, uh, why is Sikhism a world religion? Because it tends to home in on a particular uh, part of the globe. Uh, why is Judaism a world religion? It's not proselytizing. Um, Jainism, Zoroastrianism... Uh, very small in number, so they're not world religions, if you're going to use that term, because of their size. So it raises the question, what on earth do we mean when we talk about world religion? And we're not necessarily talking about age either, because uh, the Baha'is, who are relative newcomers to the so-called world religion scene, are saying, we're a world religion. So uh, what are we talking about? And I think with that particular expression, our recommendation was don't use that concept, it's meaningless. Um, so there are some where you would say the concept really is inherently problematic and we should be rethinking our use of it. In other cases, we should maybe be thinking that we need to be a bit clearer about what we mean, or perhaps we recognise that there are just... Um, different definitions, as is the case with a term perhaps like religion. Now, this kind of feeds off of what you just said there. Uh, I, scholars are going to be familiar with the idea that there are these contested concepts, but I think the average individual who uses the terms that you describe in the book and other terms that aren't discussed um, makes the assumption that these are, are pretty much settled concepts. Everybody understands Ooh. what they mean. Yeah. Uh, why do you think it is that, that scholars do contest a lot of these concepts? Why the wide disagreement? I think one of the things we're saying is that they don't contest them enough. Mm. I think that was the point, because uh, these expressions all get used uh, by scholars. But uh, I guess they get contested because... Uh, I mean, sometimes people have different axes to grind uh, with a term like religion. Uh, now, my own opinion is that there are scholars in religion that themselves are not particularly religious. Some of them are actually quite opposed to religion. And I mean, that's OK, because uh, if you're a criminologist, you're opposed to crime. So you can be opposed to <laughs> the subject matter that you're uh, specializing in. But um I, I, some scholars that I would regard as being a bit hostile to religion uh, will say to their new students, uh, there is no such thing as religion. And then if you're a fresh student, you think, well, that's a bit strange. Isn't that what I've come to study here? So um, <laughs> you can get uh, this kind of idea that religion is such a nebulous term that we shouldn't be using it at all. That's one point of view. Uh, there's another point of view, which uh, I think would be my own, namely that it's an expression that is used in common currency, 
we all know it when we see it. And it was Ludwig Wittgenstein, whom I studied in my philosophy days, who said the meaning of a word is its use in language. So my view would be, let's look at how people are using the term and then maybe we can get at the meaning that way. Um, the author who wrote about religion, uh, which I think was, I'm forgetting my own book now, uh, it was David Morgan that wrote about religion. Um, he took a, a somewhat different approach to uh, the topic. And uh, that's fair enough. Uh, religion is contested in that sort of sense that um, a lot of us have quite different views about um, how we should define the term, whether we should be using it at all, uh, whether there is a case for saying that we study uh, certain things that are popularly called religions or whether we should expand out into things like Marxism and secularism and uh, patriotism, uh, all sorts of isms, uh, why do we put them outside the religious category? So uh, there is also a view in the study of religion that um, we should be talking about worldview studies, not about religious studies. So, uh, again, a variety of opinions here, and, um, well, I guess I could say what I think, but uh, <laughs> there's uh, such a huge variety of uh, uh, disagreements about the topic. What Would some of the disagreement come also by way of special academic specialization? So a religious studies perspective on these contested concepts might come from one vantage point, but someone who, for example, is an anthropologist looking at religious expression in a given culture might see that it's more difficult to make the separation between religion and culture. They're, they're more united. So does the academic lens that one is looking at, is that, is that a factor? Well, I think that is a factor, that it's very hard to separate what's religion and what's culture. Because uh, if one takes things like... Um, trying to think of an example, probably not a good example about Sikhs wearing turbans. Uh, is that part of their culture or is that part of their religion? Because not all Sikhs do. And uh, again, I think we can often be guilty of stereotyping. Uh, a lot of textbooks will talk about the five Ks of Sikhism. Well, uh, I think most Sikhs I come across don't actually score five out of five on, on that one. Um, but yeah, it's it's very hard to, to to say what is part of a religion and what's part of culture. Maybe a better example would be uh, polygamy, because uh, Christian missionaries have had problems about that. Um, they've gone out to countries where polygamy is uh, maybe not exactly the norm, but it's fairly widespread. Now, is that part of their culture or part of their religion? And is it part of Christianity to say you mustn't be polygamously married? Because if you do, and if you're a missionary, then you're saying you must choose which of your several wives you're going to have. And I mean, that's problematic as well, because uh, uh, all of your wives except one, uh, I'm going to be very happy about that one. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but you could say, well, this is part of their culture. Uh, I mean, after all, there are quite a lot of polygamists in the Bible. So arguably, that's something that might be acceptable. So uh, the point I'm making is not to adjudicate on that one, but to say, well, uh, what's religion? What's culture? 
can you separate the two? And it's not a clear distinction at all. Let's talk about a couple of the concepts that are discussed in the book. And these two are separate entries, but I'm going to ask you to comment on them together Mm. that are near and dear to my heart. The term cult and the term new religious movement. We see the term cult constantly in the media. Um, I think most recently there was a a religious group. I can't remember what country it it was in where the pastor supposedly through his leadership was, is now responsible for the starvation deaths of many of his petitioners. And they're saying, well, the media says that's a cult. And the assumption is everybody understands what a cult is. And yet in the academic world, uh, there is great hesitancy and reservation to use that term and they substitute new religious movement. Can you talk about the term cult and the term new religious movement and why those are contested concepts? Okay, well, the thing about cult, uh, actually to talk about cult takes me right back to when I started uh, my work on new religious movements. Because my first experience of uh, looking at cults was when I was on the United Reformed Church's Mission and Other Faiths Committee. That was back in 1981. Uh, I joined them and uh, they were looking at relationships with other faiths. And the uh, issue of new religions or cults was raised. Uh, the, the, The question was, can we relate to them in a similar sort of way as we do with Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims and so on, um, or are they different? And um, we invited uh, one of the representatives of uh, what's often called an anti-cult organization, and she came to speak to us, and she brought a list, uh, and the list was entitled List of Cults, Sects and Fringe Groups. And this was quite an extraordinary list. It had 107 entries in all. I counted them. And they included the most extraordinary range of things. Um, I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm relying on memory. But uh, as a, for instance, Baha'i were there. Um, now, they didn't include spiritualists. That was that seemed a bit strange. Um, they had biorhythms. They had uh, Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, and uh, there was this extraordinary mix of religious organizations and um, sort of psycho-healing techniques, crystal therapy, just about everything was put in this mix with a number of omissions. And um, did they forget the omitted ones or did they not think they were cult sects and fringe groups or what so the whole thing seemed to me to be a muddle and um, actually I wasn't the only member of the committee that reacted badly to this presentation Uh, we said well uh, this is just an assortment of techniques and uh, forms of spirituality um, whatever so that's part of the problem with the word cult. Um, first of all, it's pejorative. Uh, if I say you're in a cult, I'm s- saying that's terrible. Uh, in fact, a number of uh, people in the anti-cult movement talk about a destructive cult. And uh, I'm never quite clear what they mean about that. Uh, are they contrasting it maybe with benign cults? 
because we never hear about them if they exist. Oh. And uh, if they're destructive cults, what exactly do they destroy? Um, you know, maybe they've got an answer to that. I'm, I'm not saying they don't, but it's it's puzzling. And, and not only is it pejorative, but as with this 107 concept list I mentioned, uh, what do you put into it and what don't you? Now, my colleague Stephen Sutcliffe uh, makes a comment in a book he wrote about the New Age. It's called Children of the New Age, and it was published in, I think it was 2002. And his objection to the term is, as he puts it, it lacks predictable content. And uh, that's something that has always struck me and stayed with me. Uh, that's a very good criterion to use when deciding whether a term is a useful one. Because if we talked about tables and chairs, uh, they've got predictable content. Uh, you and I, I trust, don't have any difficulty in saying that's a table, that's a chair, and so on. But uh, when we talk about, well, in Stephen's case, it's uh, what is new age, when is something part of the new age, and when it's not, um, it's kind of nebulous. So actually, we use that concept in the book uh, as one of the chapters, but also with the word cult. What's a cult? When is something a cult? Is spiritualism a cult? Is the Hare Krishna movement a cult? If you try telling Scientologists that they're a cult, they'll get their lawyers on the job pretty fast. So... Um, <laughs> On the other hand, it is okay, I think, to talk about uh, the cult of Elvis, or we talk about cult films and cult books. So uh, the whole thing is just so nebulous that uh, it's a concept that I personally, and uh, probably the majority of my colleagues would say that's a term to be avoided. It's pejorative and it hasn't got predictable content. But it, so uh, academics would substitute the term new religious movement, uh, yeah. which is not pejorative, but even that has its problems, its challenges in terms of a, a label. Yeah, well, I think part of the problem is that um, the media landed us with this uh, kind of web of concepts that don't fit together, like the 107 point list. And they said, these are cults. And we've said as academics, well, we don't like that term, so what term can we substitute? And I'm not sure we've done the right thing, actually, on that, because as I say in my chapter, I really think a new religious movement is a concept that we're now landed with. Uh, we can't do much about it now that it's stuck. But I've got problems with it, and um, I'm not sure that I can do better, really. Um, but given that the media have... Uh, got this list of uh, concepts and movements and whatever and said these are cults then we've had the task of saying well what have they got in common uh what, what is it that makes us interested in them as new religious movements now uh and if you want my own solution to it, I think it might be better to talk about things like um, 19th century Christian derived organizations um, and actually to label the date rather than to say they're new. Because actually, the ones that were new when I started work on new religious movements are kind of getting old. 
-hmm. So uh, you is relative. Are they religious? Well, I don't think biorhythms are. If you're going to include them in the list or tarot cards or whatever, um, are they movements? Uh, well, as I say in the chapter, they're not actually movements. Uh, they're well-defined organizations. So uh, the term new religious movements does have the advantage of um, not being pejorative. If I say that something is a new religious movement, then uh, I'm simply saying, well, it's religious, um, not happy with movement, but uh, it's new-ish. Uh, it came into being as an organization maybe in the last 200 years. It's not all that new, but it's not all that old either. Right, right. Yeah. Well, in addition to these various chapters that discuss these contested concepts, you end the book uh, with a chapter written by yourself and your co-editor, Concepts in Practice. What is that chapter uh, trying to do? Well, that chapter is trying to fill a gap for a start at a practical level. Uh, when you do an anthology, more often than not, you get an author that doesn't deliver. So to be frank, we were a chapter short because somebody defaulted on us. So <laughs> Amy and I thought, what do we do about that? And we thought, well, why not have a chapter that is a kind of case study that causes us to uh, decide whether some of the concepts we've been discussing are applicable and how they fit in and uh, so on. So um, I suggested an incident uh, at an interfaith, no, it wasn't an interfaith gathering, it was a Buddhist gathering. Um, it was in Wolverhampton Town Hall a good few years ago now. And uh, there was a Buddhist monk who, well, there were several Buddhist monks at uh, the, the gathering. It was a celebration of Wesak, uh, which is the day on which the Buddha is said to have been uh, born, enlightened, um, and attained Parinirvana, death after enlightenment. Uh, so it's a big cause for celebration. So I was at this event, and uh, it was a kind of party. Uh, there were uh, women and uh, girls that had made tea and cakes and performed dances, and one or two people uh, from the Buddhist community and also uh, people from the town hall and various dignitaries got up and made speeches. And then this Buddhist monk got up, and he was a Western convert. And uh, if you're a convert, you're always more enthusiastic than people that belong to the religion all their lives. He got up on the platform, and he said something to the effect that uh, it was all very well to have tea and cakes and dancing, but this won't help you to gain enlightenment. And you should be meditating, you should be taking part in the spiritual life of uh, of Buddhism. Now, that seemed to me, first of all, to be very rude, um, but also it uh, indicated something that Westerners are interested in when they convert. They want to kind of get to the top spiritually. They want to meditate, they want to, well, maybe not attain nirvana, but they often talk about spiritual progress. Now, in my book, that's not what people necessarily join a religion for. You can get all sorts of things out of a religion, uh, like tea and cakes, 
or um, maybe moral encouragement, uh, counselling. There are all sorts of these, uh, all sorts of things, uh, perhaps building up to, if you're a Protestant, salvation. Uh, a lot of Protestants would say, well, we hit the jackpot on that, we're saved. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, anyway, the incident that uh, I suggested gave all sorts of scope to talk about things like conversion. Um, is it syncretism? Uh, I think there is blending of Eastern attitudes to Buddhism with Western concepts of what Buddhism is, which is very much kind of book-based and nibbanic, as uh, one author uh, uses the term. Uh, you want to take your religion as you think seriously if you convert to it. So there was, was this host of concepts that we felt impinged on that particular incident. And so we tried to focus the book down on something that people could um, envisage and uh, think about. Uh, I'm assuming the audience for this book is primarily uh, for scholars trying to help them get them thinking, uh, is that the case? And if so, do you hope it also as a wider audience, more general readership? Well, I'd hope there's a more general readership. And um, when you put forward a book proposal, as I'm sure you know, publishers don't like you saying this will appeal to the general reader because right. that seems to be unduly optimistic. And, um, it would be nice to think that everybody's rushing into their local public library demanding copies of the book, but I think we're realistic. Um, people often think you make a vast fortune out of writing books. Uh, <laughs> the builder that we employ comes round to our place and um, he sees some of the, the stuff that I've written. He says, you must be rolling in it. <laughs> and I've got to persuade him that I'm not Dan Brown. <laughs> I haven't written the Da Vinci Code. But, um, more often than not, you get a note from your publisher saying um, you haven't reached the uh, target <laughs> amount to transfer to your bank. Um, so, right. um, now, I've lost track of my train of thought there. What was it you asked me a moment oh, ago? Uh, uh, the, the audience for the book. The audience for the book, right. So, uh, the idea of the book was to kind of raise some kind of awareness and reflection among academics primarily, also to help students to recognize that when you use a concept, um, you're often in the middle of a host of problems about it. Concepts aren't straightforward. So uh, that was the primary couple of aims, uh, academic debate, helping students. But uh, there may well be, and we hope there will be other people that are interested in the book, because uh, I like to think that I write in a way that uh, people can understand. And when people tell me that I write clearly, then I feel complimented by that. Because uh, maybe you've sat through lectures given by colleagues where you literally haven't understood a word of it. <laughs> I'll be honest and say that. I mean, towards the end of my career now, I think it's quite safe to admit these things. But um, I don't think it's okay to wrap up your writing in obscure jargon that only a small elite can understand. Uh, we ought to be communicating better than we are. And that's what I hope we've managed to do. I think some chapters are a bit clearer than others in the book, but... Um, 
we've tried to get it across as clearly as possible. Well, I think it's a great book. I'll be writing a review of it for Cultural Encounters Journal. Um, and I'll let you know when that is published and available. And uh, I want to direct folks to the program notes for this episode for uh, not only a link to what you're doing, your information, but also the book itself, uh, your co-editor. And there will be a link there to uh, a, a discussion of the contributors at the book launch that you had. So there's far more that people can access to learn more about this book. And George, I just want to thank you for coming back again on the program. Well, thanks for having me and uh, thanks for mentioning the link. You can actually see some of the authors in person if you follow that link. So uh, uh, I always used to wonder what scholars looked like in the days when I was a student because you didn't have these kind of visuals. So you can actually put a face to the author if you uh, look at the launch video. And folks can also, uh, there'll be a link in the program notes to our prior conversation that we had in your work on Jehovah's Witnesses, which is one of the uh, most watched videos of this podcast. So there's there's plenty there to follow up with. George, thank you again for coming on. Well, thanks a lot.